welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for Sunday, April 23rd, 2023, with Tyler Chadwick and Rebecca DeSchweinitz. Dialogue Board Chair Chris Kimball is co-hosting today. We've got Michael Austin helping out, uh, and we're happy to have you join us. Whether you're a longtime listener or have just found Dialogue Gospel Study, we invite you to check out all of the Dialogue offers at our website, dialoguejournal.com. There you can find previous gospel study lessons, other offerings like Dialogue Out Loud and Dialogue Book Report, as well as links to all the great shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network, including things like Latter-day Struggles and The Foyer. You can also find the latest issue of the journal, along with the entire Dialogue archive. That's more than five decades of the journal's scholarship, poetry, essays, sermons, fiction, and art. In the very first issue of Dialogue, founder Eugene England wrote, My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Faith and curiosity and awe continue to guide the work that we do. Find out how you can support the work and secure the future of the oldest independent Mormon studies journal at the donate link at dialoguejournal.com. For those live on Zoom today, as always, you're invited to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. We'll follow along on Facebook, where we are also running a live stream. Today's teacher, Tyler Chadwick, joins us from Ogden, Utah, where he lives with his wife, Jess, and four daughters. Tyler is an award-winning writer and editor and a sought-after teacher with a PhD in English and the teaching of English from Idaho State University. He teaches writing at Utah Valley University and has four books to his name, two anthologies, Fire in the Pasture, 21st Century Mormon Poets, and Dove Song, Heavenly Mother and Mormon Poetry. His books also include a collection of poetry and essays, field notes on language and kinship, and a poetry collection, Litany with Wings. As with any Latter-day Saints scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher and participants. They do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. Our opening prayer will be offered by Heather, Barris, uh, Heather Harris of Bergevin. Heather is an author who lives in South Carolina with her kids, two cats, a dog, and six million mosquitoes. Her new book of poetry, Catabasis uh, was just published yesterday by BCC Press. At the end of the lesson, Becky Rosler, proud donor to the Nature Conservancy, happy Earth Day, everyone, and lover of uh, Avian creatures, will say our closing prayer. Both Becky and Heather are previous Dialogue Gospel Study teachers, so be sure to check out their lessons if you haven't already. We'll start today with music. I heard the voice of Jesus performed by Chris Brunel. Our dear Heavenly Father, we would like to thank Thee and Heavenly Mother for this beautiful day that we have, that we have to be together. We thank Thee that we have the chance to listen to such beautiful music. We thank Thee for the beautiful world which Thou hast given to us, and we ask Thee to please help us to be kind to it and good stewards of it. We ask Thee to please open our hearts and open our minds today. Help us to find sparks of goodness that will help us to continue this week in the goals that we have for ourselves and also the goals that thou hast for us. We ask thee to please help us especially to, to shore up our understanding 
of thee and of thy love for thy people, all of thy peoples, and help us to determine which things we need to be able to focus on in our own study. Always help our belief. We love thee. And we say these things, same of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Guess that means it's my turn now, doesn't it? Um, thank you for that great music and that uh, beautiful prayer, Heather. That was, I hopefully I don't let anybody down with this. Um, me uh, pull this up here. Um, let's see. Could you, Chris, enable it so I can share my screen? Awesome. Thank you so much. It'd be a little rough if I couldn't share my presentation. So I'll open that up and get this going here. So the, the title that I've given my presentation today is I am Life Resurgent, an arboreal reading of John 11. Now this is both in honor let's say, of, of Earth Day, as well as of um, our eternal mother, who is characterized as the mother tree. Um, now, so what I'm thinking today is, in, in today's exploration, I'll be using the rhetoric of a familiar religious symbol, so the tree of life, um, with ideas drawn especially from Catherine Knight Sontag's The Mother Tree, um, discovering the love and wisdom of our divine mother, um, so I'll be using that, that religious symbol to illuminate a familiar scriptural narrative, the raising of Lazarus. So I'll be doing what I call an arboreal reading of John 11, um, which uses the, uh, the notion of the tree to kind of, uh, present my argument and to, to show some things, to illuminate some things in my reading of John chapter 11. Now, the tree of life, it, it typifies the wisdom, power, and agency of life's originary bodies, processes, and ecologies. It's a primal generative influence. The actus mundi turning the earth, the mother tree holding all things in relation. Scott, of course, the roots or the underworld below all things. This is the realm of the unseen, the unapparent, the hidden, the abject. Um, it's also the most permanent stabilizing force of the tree holds it in place. It also nourishes the tree as, as well as being rich in interconnection and wisdom. This is a place where its roots reach out into connection with the soil, with uh, fungal species, and it shares information, experience, and wisdom with, its, um, with, with the trees that are around it. Um, and so that, that's a very important part we may not often think about as being so important is the root structure of the tree. Now in the middle, of course, is the trunk. This is the represents the earth, which is uh, Suntag characterizes as being through all things. This is the space um, of what's the main organ and the central support of the tree. It's the conduit between the roots and the crown, the crown and the roots sharing or passing along uh, bits of information and chemical signals and food 
to nourish the roots as well as the leaves. It's also a light receiving part of the tree. There are little uh, pods or, or uh, buds in the in the trunks of most trees that receive light and give it an indication, will help it to read its environment and to um, just to live in relation with the things around it. And then of course, there is the crown. This is the heaven above all things. In terms of the tree of light or tree, this is the place of the branches, the blossoms, the leaves, the fruit. Um, it's the place of photosynthesis, oxygen release, um, and it's also the place of seed production and soil protection. Uh, the tree spends a lot of energy producing the seeds uh, to, to feed that, to pass its genes on to the next generation. It also is the, well, it uh, protects the soil from the rains that would erode anything beneath it and expose its root structure. So this is a, the structure of the mother tree as well as any tree. Um, now, thinking about this in terms of the narrative today, I see John 11 being sort of the trunk or the stem, the, the support of, of my argument today. It's the main text that I'm considering and seeking to illuminate. But I do so by looking at, the, at its narrative roots, its rhetorical roots, in John chapters 2, 4, and 5, where we have the sign of the, bringing the water to wine, a distant healing, and a healing at Bethesda. And, and then we'll think, I think about that in terms of the, the branches of this argument, what it all leads to, the idea that Jesus is life resurgent, considering him as the word, as an agency of renewal and liberation. Now, all of these aspects of the tree interact with in, and interact with one another um, to sustain the health of the tree and its environment. Now, so to start off with, thinking of the first verse of John chapter 11. And I look at this and there's really a few things that call my attention as I started reading it. Um, a certain man was ill, Lazarus from Bethany, from the village of Mary and Martha, her sister. Of course, I'm drawn in by the idea, well, by the relationship here among Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and Jesus. But the first thing that catches me is that first phrase, a certain man. Now, this is used in various places throughout the, um, well, across the Gospels and Acts. And it, it's used in at least two ways. One, it's used to introduce a parable. This is especially true in Luke. He says a, something like a certain man has two sons. And in various other ways, he uses that construction. Um, so, and it's also used, though, throughout the Gospels and the Acts to introduce someone or uh, a story or an event that deserves special attention from readers. The narrator of John uses this construction in only three places, um, and each falls into category two. One use is in John chapter 11. The other two uses are in John chapter 4 and John chapter 5. Now in John chapter 4, this is uh, coming on the, well, Jesus is he has just returned to Cana of Galilee where he made the water into wine. And there was, here's the construction, a certain government official in Capernaum whose son was ill. Now in John chapter 5, verses 2, or if we see this verse 2 is 5, he approaches the, the sick in, the, uh, in Jerusalem where there is a pool called Bethesda. Um, there was there, here's the construction again, a certain man who had been disabled 
for 38 years. So these draw my attention as readers. It, it's as if the uh, narrator was saying, listen up, pay attention, and make connections between these and among these stories. Now, considering that, I'd, I'd look at John chapter 4, and there's also something else here that the narrator seems to be doing. He superimposes this moment over the sight of his first sign. So, this is, and he came again to Cana of Galilee, where, of course, he made the water into wine. So, this very first uh, miracle, it seems like he's pointing us to say, hey, also, look at this. There's a connection here between, or you can make a connection between what I'm saying here about this certain government official and what happened in Cana of Galilee. So in my reading, I turn there to John chapter 2. Of course, this is the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. Jesus, his mother, and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and they run out of wine. They What what, could a party be without all the wine, I'm guessing? And Mary turns to Jesus, and she says to him, they have no wine. Now, Jesus turns back to her and says, woman, what does that matter to you and me? My time has not yet come. Essentially, he's saying, it's none of my business. Why should we be worried about that? This isn't really our party. We were invited. But his mom prods him to, uh, well, and he's also doesn't feel like it's time yet to present himself as Messiah. But his mom prods him, and then I, I, I imagine, trying to imagine what that scene would be like if she's wagging a finger at him or, or something like that. She gives him the mom look and then turns to the servants and tells them, do what he tells you. So he's prodded to act because of his mother. Now, this is the first of three basic pericopes or sections in this story from John chapter 2 where Jesus is speaking with his mother. Um, the second one is Jesus speaking with the servants who then take, he says to take these stone water vessels that hold several gallons of liquid and that had been emptied because of they'd been used for the ritual washing of the hands of the people who were at the wedding feast, likely. Um, so this suggests that there were a lot of people there, that these vessels were empty. And he says to them, fill the vessels with water. Something that I find really interesting here is that he doesn't touch the vessels. He's not the one that is filling them with water. He directs others to act in, in his behalf or to do the work, to co-labor with him. And so they, the servants filled them up, and then he said to them again, take some out and take it to the master of the feast. Of course, we know what happens here. as he, the, the, In the third pericope, the servants take the... Uh, drawn from water to the master of the feast, who drinks it and says, whoa, I need you to get the bridegroom over here because this wine, this is amazing wine, best I've ever had. Most people, they save the bad wine for when the people are already a little tipsy, but now you've given us the strong wine. You've saved that for the end of the feast. Now, there's some really interesting things about this um about this event. Notice, go back here, uh, the first line, on the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. The third day, John is is often speaking in multiple levels. The narrator of John speaks in multiple levels. And this third day seems to prefigure 
his resurrection on the third day. So he's kind of pointing for, pointing us forward to that. Consider these things all of a piece, maybe I hear him saying. And this marriage feast also points or can be seen pointing to the messianic banquet where all of, uh, well, people are, where people are gathered to share in the abundance of life as um, encapsulated and represented as symbolized in the figure of Messiah, the figure of Jesus. And so this wedding feast, it does a lot of things. Um, on, on the one hand, it does those things. On the other hand, it is also, of course, his first sign. Jesus did this, the first of the miracles in Cana of Galilee. There's that repetition again. And he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So, not only do I hear the narrative prefiguring the ongoing transformative presence of the Word or the Messiah um, and his influence his, as symbolized in the Messianic banquet, um, I also see it as a miracle of transmutation. Transmutation being, of course, the changing of one thing to another from well, one state of being to another. So new, con new conditions are superimposed on old ones. Here, wine is turned into water, um, and the Messiah's revealed glory takes the place of his hidden glory at the instigation of his mother. So she becomes the seed, really, of this initial transmutation and of the beginning of his transmutation into the Messiah. It also presents, as I read it, a, a pattern of transmutation that carries through um, not only this story, but the other three narratives that I'm pointing, or the other three narratives that I'm pointing to as well, as in John 4, 5, and 11. Now, the first part of this pattern is that as readers, we encounter a sense of indigence. Someone is suffering a loss, or they are in want. Now, in John chapter 2, the wine has run dry at the wedding feast. In John chapters 4 and 11, a father and her sisters are losing a son or a brother. In John chapter 5, a man is suffering chronic illness alone. So here we're introduced to this sense of indigence. The second part of the pattern, we are introduced to the subjects in, in their loss and want. So we see the suffering here. Now, of course, in John chapter 2, Mary is concerned that the wine has run out. Um, in John 4 and 11, the father and the sisters worry over their sick son and brother. And in 5, the paralyzed man lies in his solitude. So we're invited, perhaps, through this part of the pattern to have compassion or to pity these people just a little bit. So we're invited to participate in their suffering just for a minute. Now, the third part of this pattern I see being that we hear a catalyzing agent speak from the loss, petitioning for relief. Now, this catalyzing agent is what, of course, would stir the miracle or the transmutation, the change. It's what begins the change. Mary tells Jesus they have no wine. A father asks Jesus to heal his dying son from a distance. Jesus asks the paralyzed man, do you desire to be healed? Mary and Martha tell Jesus, the one whom you love is ill. So these then become the, the catalyzing moments in these different 
miracles of transmutation. Now, in the next phase of the patter, we hear Jesus as the divine expression and life-giving dialogue respond. Now, at the beginning of John, he says, in the beginning was the word, and I would add, in the beginning and ever after was the word, his influence. The influence of the word extends through the entire narrative um, as through his ministry. And in each of these events that I'm considering today, he acts through speech alone. He doesn't reach out and touch anything. Um, for instance, uh, as in the miracle when he mixes some mud, puts him on the blind man's eyes, or even touches the blind man's eyes. Here he is acting through speech alone and relies very heavily on co-laborers in, in certain instances to, uh, to do some of the work of the transmutation. Now, in, in the water to wine story, he says, fill the vessels with water. In the healing of the father's son, the government official's son, go, your son will live, he says. Then he tells the paralyzed man, get up and take your bed and walk. And then with Lazarus, the story of Lazarus, he tells his disciples this illness, Lazarus' illness, will not lead to death. And then he says, Lazarus, come out. So he's acting there through words. He responds to the petitions of the catalyzing agents. On the fifth part of this pattern, we see the word generate changed conditions and we witness the changed body. Um, this, this, and this speaks to the constitutive or cosmoplastic nature of the word, its ability to shape new conditions and new worlds out of old. The water was changed to wine, and the host, of course, rejoiced. Um, and the, the father's servants said to him that his son lives. And then with the paralyzed man, immediately after Jesus spoke, the man was healthy, and he took his bed and walked. And then in John chapter 11, the man, Lazarus, who had died, came forth. So again, the word here generates changed conditions and witnesses the changed body. And we witness the changed body, rather, um, through the act of the transmutation. Now, in the sixth part of this pattern, this is the, the final one, we, um, we hear the bodies bear witness of Jesus, or we hear the body, the changed body, bear witness of Jesus, and or we witness bodies in the state of belief. In the water to wine narrative, Jesus did this. He changed the water to wine and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So not only has his body been changed, his, his uh, disposition, he's more willing to reveal his glory here, but his disciples, they also believe a little more in him and his mission. Um, and in the healing of the government official's son, says, then the father knew and he believed together with his entire household. So this doesn't just affect the son and the father, but the government official's entire household. In the healing of the paralyzed man, the man told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Initially, he said he didn't know who it was, but then Jesus came back to him again and said, your sins are forgiven you. Don't, um, well, don't, don't sin anymore. Something worse might happen to you. And then he goes, the uh, man goes to the Jews and says, oh, wait, yeah, it was Jesus, I remember now. And then in the raising of Lazarus, 
when they see this, many of the Jews, when they saw what was done, believed in him. So these changed bodies and the state of belief are sort of the, the results. These are the new conditions that are superimposed on the old. So changed bodies and changed belief are the result of these initial trans transmutations. Now it's interesting to note that in these last two instances, the witness leads to greater wrath from Jewish leaders. They become more and more threatened by the influence of this man who is going about healing people and empowering others. And that, they, they think, takes away from their power. So they become more and more wrathful and seek to kill him. So now through this whole pattern, these additional miracles of transmutation, the new conditions, again, are superimposed on old ones. Here, the new conditions are healthier individual and communal bodies, and also changed dispositions. So we have some moment of conversion or metanoia going on because of these signs. Now, they're super, these conditions are superimposed on the old ones, on sick, dying, and disconnected bodies. And these miracles, they change our old state into a new state through the words of Jesus. Now, but there are also differences among each of these narratives, which I should have said earlier, I'm just kind of assuming that uh, listeners are familiar with. They're pretty pretty common stories, but I'm, I've just been kind of assuming that you're familiar with them. Now, so some of these differences or what I'm calling narrative transmutation, so changes in the, the narrative form or the pattern, uh, they become apparent when we look closely at each of these narratives. In John chapter 2, it presents the narrative presents a reluctant Messiah. He is hesitant to come out as the Messiah, to come out as a being of glory, until he's prodded forward by his mother Mary's insistence. Now, this change reiterates for me the need, his need for co-laborers to invoke and share his glory. He's not acting in a vacuum. That is not how I believe the divine word or the divine expression works. It's responding to other conditions in a continually creative act. Um, so that's a big difference in be between what happens in John chapter 2 um, and the other narratives is we have here a reluctant Messiah. Whereas in these, the others, he's very willing to step forward and do the things that are requested by the catalyzing agents. Now in John chapter 4, the biggest narrative transmutation here is that uh, the narrator revisits and revises the story of the healing of the centurion's servant. It can be found in Matthew 8, chapter, or Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13 and Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Now, in the previous, though, some of these transmutations include um, the centurion, uh, the soldier being changed out for the father, who is a government official, um, likely serving Herod, uh, the servant, whom the centurion loves um, and, and cares for as a member of his household, is changed to a son. And in the first story of the centurion's servant, the healing of the centurion's servant, Jesus praises the centurion's faith in front of the entire group. Whereas in the story of the government official, he 
accuses, he lands an accusation against the government official of lacking belief, but not just of the government official, of all of his lackeys of his company. Uh, you will only seek a sign, he says, um, to help you believe. But the government official persists, and of course his son is healed. Now one addition here, in addition to these other changes in the basic story itself, an addition is that the father's household comes to belief. In the initial story, the centurion already believes, but in the, the uh, revision, the transmuted story, the father's entire household, the father and his entire household come to believe. Well, that's a change in the narrative. Speaking on multiple levels to this transmutation, the narrator of John transmutes this earlier narrative into a newer one um, to point out things to us as readers, I would argue. But also within the story, there's a physical transmutation and a spiritual spiritual transmutation. So there's there's something layered going on here in the narrative itself. And that's something that I think is fruitful to pay attention to um, as we're reading this. Now, John chapter 5, it shows Jesus approaching the man who suffers in solitude, is seemingly unacquainted with the heather, whereas in the other story, someone else approaches him as the catalyzing agent. Here, Jesus himself is the catalyzing agent. He steps into this colony of the sick and walks over to this man, perhaps recognizing that he'd been there uh, for a long time and had no one to help him. And he asks him, do you want to be healed? And then the man comes back and says, ah, well, I don't have anybody to help me get into the water. And then Jesus tells him, take up your bed and walk. And of course, the man does that. And he's accused by the others uh, for breaking the Sabbath. And he says, oh, wait, the guy that healed me told me to do this. Um, and after... After this happens and Jesus comes and visits the man again, uh, the man goes and testifies or bears witness to the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus. And then it, it enters the man who is seemingly unacquainted with Jesus, begins to believe in him. And later there's a conversation between Jesus and the Jewish leaders where he presents to them, he points to them a future where he'll raise the dead. So he's pointing to a, a, a deeper, a greater transmutation than what he's just done. Not only do I see this pointing ahead to Lazarus, but also to his own resurrection much later. Um, and so all of these different transmutations, they lend themselves, well, the, the similarities in the transmutations kind of speak to, we bring these ideas with us as we begin reading John chapter 11. A certain man was ill, Lazarus from Bethany. Now, a big, a narrative transmutation in, oh, going the wrong way. A narrative transmutation in John is this. Here we see the urgency and the intimacy of the interactions that he has in this narrative. They show how high the stakes have become for Jesus, both politically and interpersonally. He's not just some distant Messiah again who can blow off the business of being human. He's connected, and he's deeply connected with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So much so 
that when he had gone into hiding because uh, people in Judea were ready to stone him, he hears about Lazarus's illness and feels the need to enter this place where he is, to return to the place where he's in great danger uh, because those he loved and needed him, well, because he loved and needed his friends. Now, this suggests, again, that he's deeply invested in the business of being human. And he's become, from the first sign to now, a deeply interdependent and interactive being. He recognizes the deep connections that he has with these people that he's serving and ministering to. And he's drawn again and again into the work of caring and love and into active engagement in life's deepest dialogue, the dialogue that keeps us alive. I want to look here, just in conclusion, at a, at a few moments from John chapter 11. Of course, we have the way that this narrative is, in fra is framed, which, as I read it, is so filled with urgency and intimacy that it draws me more into the narrative and helps me feel something of what Mary and Martha were feeling. So here we have, in verses 1 through 3, a certain man was ill. Lazarus from Bethany, from the village of Mary and Martha, her sister. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and dried his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. Therefore the sister sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. Now, in case it wasn't clear, Lazarus, of course, is ill. This is repeated multiple times throughout this, just these first few verses, these opening moments in this pericope. So the narrator wants us to get some of the gravity of this situation and also of the intimacy of the relationship, again, among Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and also Jesus. Now in the next section of the pericope, when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness will not lead to his death, again, reference to the illness, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, that he stayed in that place for two days. Now, um, I would probably rush to the side of my friend, but Jesus, for whatever reason, because he is um, all about not just serving Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, but has a greater purpose in mind for this little miracle that he's building up to, he stays behind and he holds Martha and Mary and even Lazarus in their silence for, for, for days. Um, so they, they have to sit there in the darkness and the silence of the potential loss of Lazarus. I can only imagine how that must have felt for them. And I feel that as I work through and think about this narrative and its repetition of the relationship between Martha and Mary, between these siblings and Jesus, and of the illness of Lazarus. And then, of course, into this, this urgency and this intimacy, Jesus says, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples are like, well, hold on. Now, remember that the Jews seek to stone you there, and you want to go there again? And Jesus says, yes, I do. He's drawn into, again, the business of being human and into deep interconnection. And that pulls him back um, to, into the silence in which he has left Mary 
and Martha. I'm going to jump ahead several verses to think about what happens when Jesus finally comes. He came and found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, in the at, it may have been at the time that people, well, that they believed that the spirit hung around the body for a few days after it died, so three days. So on the fourth day, Lazarus would have been really dead. Not just mostly dead, he was actually dead. Um, and so he comes when he had been in the tomb for four days. Martha, hearing that he's coming, runs to Jesus, but leaves Mary sitting in the house. Um, as this is kind of, it, it illuminates their personalities again. Martha being drawn to be hospitable, to reach out to others. Mary kind of sitting in the silence and the grief. Um, and maybe who has cho chosen the better part here? I don't know. Um, but it shows the differences in their personality and speaks to sort of the, the blossoming again of the relationship between them and Jesus and their, their, uh, their sense of what this loss is all about. And Martha, as she gets to him, said to Jesus, Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. But then she follows up with this, but I know that even now, if you ask God for something, God will give it to you. So her plea is followed with her witness. Um, again, she's become the catalyzing agent, but it's followed with her witness of who Jesus is and what he can do. And then Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha says, of course, I know he will in the resurrection on the last day. I know this is coming. But then Jesus said to her, no, I am the resurrection and the life. I am life resurgent. Here and now, I am life. Whoever believes in me, even if he's dead, and I read that as physically or spiritually, they will live. All who live and believe in me will never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? She answers, of course I do. I believe that you're the son of God, the one who comes into the world. I believe that you hold the keys to life and can show us how to live eternally and in a more resurgent way. Now, after Martha says this, she runs to Mary and, and whispers to her, the teacher's here and he calls for you. I love the fact that they called him teacher, this, this, um, this intimate name, this title that they've given him. It's not, not master. Some translations have master, but really the master there means, or the Greek there means teacher, the instructor. He's the one who's taught us. He's been with us. He's nurtured us. He's walked with us. Even if we don't see that in a narrative, it's implied in this story as well as in what we get from Luke. Uh, the teacher is here and calls for you. And when she heard this, and I love this part, Mary arose and came to him. I imagine her running. She stands up from her, from the silence and leaves that womb, that sort of underworld and goes into the light of Jesus's presence. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet as we find her again in Luke and says, Lord, repeating the words of the exact words of Martha, if you were here, my brother would not have died. So she is here in the depths of her grief and the silence that she's been sitting in and that comes out in her language. If you were here, my brother would not have died. Her petition and her petition stirs 
Jesus. When Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews gathered with her crying, he was troubled and moved in spirit, and he said, Where have you placed him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. One of the shortest verses in Scripture, but it speaks to the deeply emotional nature of Jesus. It speaks to his transmutation, uh, the, 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 uh, the character arc, as it were, that he has been through from not wanting to connect with others or be involved really in the business of being human to being so deeply involved with this business that he weeps over the loss and grief of another person, of those who are aren't an abject, the, the unseen, the unapparent, those who don't, whose voices aren't often heard. I also find it very interesting that in his first sign, and in this is the seventh sign leading up to his resurrection, um, that it was women who were really the seeds, the catalysts of his change. They are, they are there in those moments, deeply connecting with him um, and rising from or, or bringing about, instigating new conditions because of their faith, the seeds that they plant in him and that he in turn nurtures and plants in them as it grows into this tree, this great arbor that feeds and nurtures all things. Now, now I'm back to this image again, just to remind you of, of the roots of these narratives tying all together and being so kind of interrelated with each other as I'm reading them that it's hard to, well, that, that we can sort of superimpose them on each other and see what new conditions each narrative brings into the life of Jesus and the lives of those he stirs. And all of this leading to the notion that he is life resurgent. Is the word as an agency of renewal and liberation. Now, through these narratives, we see or hear Jesus speaking directly um, and with compassion and hope. He's being with and being for others through acts of dialogue that acknowledge and give voice to the unseen and the abject, those who've lost and are alone. And these are things that I think we can draw from these narratives. They also... Um, acknowledge and give voice to the fact that, that he at once draws wisdom from their lives and nourishes their lives with deep wisdom, that he plants and nurtures seeds of belief, interconnection, and light in them, uh, that he stirs bodies and that these conditions stir bodies, both individual and communal, to new growth and breath and by calling them from the shadows, from the underworld, into the ongoing intensely collaborative work of shared renewal and, coll and collaboration, as is illustrated in a tree and in the interconnections among these narratives. And through these narratives, as my concluding thought and my witness, I hear him calling us to do the same, to use language and words in the ways that he used them, to reach out to the abject, to live our lives as it were, after the manner of a tree, of uh, the mother tree, the tree of life. And that's my witness. I leave it with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
then maybe we'll take a few minutes for some conversation before we officially close um, with uh, Becky's prayer. Um, I'm thinking about all of the kind of applications of this pattern of transmutation. Um, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Did you have things in mind as you were kind of exploring this? And um, so broader applications, is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> um, like in terms of like reading scripture or just in, in our lives or, or both. In our lives, like how, um, you know, what this suggests about kind of our own engagement with the problems of the world, um, and how we see ourselves in real, in relation, um, to that. Um, mm -hmm. well, I think on, on one hand, I think, um, Jesus or, or God conceived as, as of both father and mother, they reach out to us, are always reaching out to us through life itself, through the processes of life. Um, and then in, in our silent moments or in our dark moments, they reach out to us and our, our pleas, our petitions, our conditions may be the catalyzing agents that enter us into the dialogue with God or with life and that we can then be changed through that dialogue as it's ongoing. So the transmutation then becomes an, an act of metanoia of a continuous change of heart and mind and disposition in us as we, we press forward. Um, so that's one way that I see it kind of playing out in actuality in our moments of darkness, we might reach out. Even if we, we don't have words, it's just grief, an expression of grief, an oh, or a, a cry, um, that enters us into this recurring dialogue that uh, shapes us into something more. Yeah, yeah. And I love from the, um, from the first kind of encounter, um, this idea that it's Jesus's mom that calls him to engagement mm -hmm. in the world, right? Um, yeah. And says, you know, here, here you are, like, yeah, call, that call to engagement and to and to being, um, you know, in the here and now, and not just looking to the future, right? Which is, yeah, the pattern that that develops, and that's that's where that comes from. Um, I'm also, I mean, I'm so so. James Baldwin has this um, quote I love that that talks about, you know, what is it that keeps us from. Um, from looking at, from running toward the trouble that is life, right? And I think, you know, that's what we see happening here, um, you know, for Jesus and getting us and, and kind of he he encounters this and, you know, what is it that, that keeps him initially from running toward the trouble? Um, and then at the end where he's able to, to go back to Judea and just go right into the heart of it. Um, yeah. 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 I'm really struck by that. When, and you saying that I've, I was continually struck as I was reading, I've always been drawn, well, I've been drawn lately. Um, well, for a while to the, to the story of Lazarus, but also the story of the healing at Bethesda. And as I was reading through it and considering it this past week or two, uh, what really stuck out to me was that the man was completely alone. 
Jesus has no real audience here. There's no community, as it were, for him to be sort of performing or acting for or bearing his witness to, showing his glory. It's just this kind of intimate moment between him and this man that he approaches and that obviously um, strikes something in him because of the way he looks or maybe Jesus recognizes him because he's been there repeatedly. But in the sort of colony of the indigent, it that this man and this moment of, of kind of deep intimacy, it really struck me this time and shows, like you're pointing out, a sort of development from reluctance to engage to, to seeking it out and then moving toward the dangerous moments and at the end. So as the book of signs progresses, that's really striking to me how it's it's put together or how we can see it being put together in that way. Tyler, I'm struck in the way you draw the pattern over and over. It's a powerful way to see these miracles. I appreciate that. And I, and I was struck by the pattern, I guess, that um, that whoever the petitioner is, whether it's Mary or Mary and Martha or the man at the, at the, at, in Bethesda, that it, there's a need, there's a request, there's the, the seed or the petition is a, is a, is a, is a very physical need. It's, uh, but the, the way the narrator tells it, they, the fruit, the consequence is, is, one of healing, one of rising you know, for Lazarus, but but it's almost incidental to the way the story is told over and over again that the ultimate consequence is belief. Over. And I'm um, I'm not even sure that I would have put that as an important consequence. I mean, if I'm the petitioner, I want I want to be healed, but that over and over that that the big result is 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 belief is the glory of god is the recognition of of the of the messiah i and i um, i'm just caused to think about that what why the narrator's telling us that that's the important thing that's the thing that comes forth uh-huh. well now it, it comes at the end of john where the the narrator says i've written these signs these particular signs and as he says i could have written many other signs, but I've given you these so that you can believe in the Son of God. And that belief, as you're kind of suggesting and as the pattern hints at, isn't just uh, an intellectual thing. It's a changed disposition. It's changed being. Um, and yeah, and, and I like the way you put that, that the the outcome isn't necessarily the changed physical circumstances. It's even though that's that's a big thing. It's something beyond that as well. It's a it's a kind of belief. It strikes me that it's a kind of belief that is not just. Sometimes when we talk about God, we're talking about an existence and a, you know, a belief in existence. But this is more a belief that God is God. That God can do what He they say they can do. Yeah. Well, and that it's a God that's, I mean, it's not just in the future, right? Like you brought out that it's in the here and now and the glory of God is in the here and now. Um, and we don't have to, like the suffering, you know, here, 
matters and yeah. we're engaged with that and God's engaged with that with us. Um, he sees that he sits with us in that, in that darkness and cries with us and, um, and calls on, I, I love too. one of the main themes is the importance of co-labors in in this transmutation, um, that, you know, those who are Christ's disciples are, are doing the work. Um, yeah. Yes, Definitely. We have a couple of comments that I, I want to bring out. Um, I think this pattern is also a call to action for those of us who love and see need for blessings, divine help for those we love. Um, yeah, I mean, I, my own reaction was that I want to be the Mary or Martha asking. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They love that idea. The pattern is a call to action. Uh, there's a, a question here. Uh, is I am life resurgent? That's a phrase you've used. Is that a quote? Where's that from? Is that from the Wayman? No, that was that was from me sort of thinking about um, his witness that I am the resurrection and the life. So playing around with the idea of resurrection and, and its English etymology as well as um, its Greek, Hebrew etymology. So that wasn't from quite, I'll take full responsibility for that one because it's not necessarily, it's not in the scriptures, but I, I made that one up. So um. I think it's a wonderful word. I bet I, I, you, so you get credit as well as responsibility. I'll take that. Joe also asked earlier, the construction of the Jews, does that refer to the general population or to the Jewish leaders? Again, in most instances, I think um, it refers, well, in some, it refers to the political and social leaders, the religious leaders of the time, especially when they're they're acting against Jesus and their wrath grows. Um, but in, in other cases, I think in particular, after the raising of Lazarus, um, the Jews could be some of the, I believe, some of the general population. Although some of the Jewish leaders could be mixed in that as well, so probably helpful, Joe, to look at the context of the verses to figure out which one's being referred to. Tyler, I have a different direction. I, I like the arc that you talk about of Jesus being reluctant and moving to um, working with his friends. I, I I would like to be friends, I guess, so that that's appealing, but... <laughs> The, the whole arc, especially when you tell multiple stories, strikes me with a lot of different people, a lot of different uh, petitioners in a different position or relationship. And when I put myself into those stories, where where am I? Am I yeah. the mother? Am I the friend? Am I the centurion? Am I, where, where do I mm -hmm. fit? I mean, I like that there are many so that I could think about that, but... Well, I think that's one thing that the the different social positionings invites us to do as readers. Um, I'd like to believe that that's intentional to invite us to be Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as the host of the marriage feast or the disciples, the servants who are carrying the wine, the water slash wine to the host. Um, 
And also, like, may, am I the paralyzed man, or am I the dying son? Like, we can we can be any or all of those at once. And I like how you point that out. It can be useful to put ourselves into those positions to use our imaginations to consider that situation and how we would respond to it. I think that could be provide many fruitful readings, a diversity of ideas. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm looking at the time. And so maybe we'll officially close with that comment. Thank you so much, Tyler, for um, this beautiful lesson. You've given us a lot to think about. Uh, join us again. Uh, let's see, we're May 14th, I think. May uh, uh, Mother's Day. It'll be a really special lesson with Christy Franson. Um, and we'll have Becky close us out. Dear God, our divine teacher, Dear God, our divine teacher and source of love and care, we are grateful for Tyler and his insights, uh, his deep reading of these verses that that have reminded us of our interconnectedness with one another, with you, um, with those around us. Help us to remember that despite the structures that surround us, that we are somehow uh, a part of, that at our roots we are, uh, we have the capability of being connected in one with one another. Help us to see one another and to hear one another and grant us grace, truly help one another know how to do so. And we say this in the name of our teacher, Jesus Christ. Amen. Greetings. My name is Rebecca Deschweinitz, and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit DialogueJournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcast Network.